so much, Julian. I trust you can hear me. Um, as I said, really great to be with you. And one of the great things about um, having the camera at the back of the room is if you fall asleep, you'll never know. And so you are most welcome to make yourself as comfortable as you want. Um, but it's great to be with you again this morning. I'm not sure if you've ever heard somebody talking about information uh, on a need-to-know basis. Maybe you go to your boss and you ask her something and she says that's on a need-to-know basis. In other words, there are some things uh, you may need to know and there are some things you don't need to know. Well, um, it, the Bible says that there are many things that are good for us to know about. Um, let me see if I can change the slide. Uh, and there's some things that we don't really need to know that aren't super important. Uh, for instance, Jesus, uh, the Bible says we have to be crystal clear on who Jesus is and the gospel. Right? Remember, Jesus asks his disciples in Matthew uh, 16, says, who do people say that I am? He says, who do you say that I am? It's important that we be crystal clear on who Christ is. And throughout the epistles, uh, the apostle Paul often writes and he says, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel in which you stand, the gospel that you've believed. He writes and he says, I long to come to you in Rome um, that I may impart some encouragement to you. I long to come and preach the gospel to you. He says in Corinthians 2, how um, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Christ Jesus and Christ crucified. But there are other things that the Bible says aren't that important. We don't need to know about. For instance, Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. What's going to happen? What's going to come about tomorrow is its own problem. You've got enough problems today. Just think about following God today. Or in John 21, Peter is taking a walk with Jesus and he turns around. And he sees the apostle John behind him. And he says to Jesus, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You don't worry about that. You just uh, focus on following me. So the Bible says that there are things that we need to know about, need to be crystal clear on, but there are other things that aren't that important. We don't need to know about And Paul says the same thing here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, look at how he says it in uh, verse 1. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, he's talking about Christ's return. Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. He says, listen, we need to know that Jesus is going to come again. That's important. But when or how exactly, you don't need to know that necessarily. It's the same thing Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. Remember, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Some people get so caught up with charts and flows and diagrams and trying to predict the exact date and where Jesus is going to come. And Jesus and the Apostle Paul say, actually, these things you, you don't need to be overly worried about. But he says, there are some things that you really do need to know. For some, look at how he says in verse 2. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, Jesus will return, will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it will come suddenly, without an announcement, Jesus describes his second coming like this in Luke 24. He says he'll come like a thief in the night. Peter describes it. The Apostle John describes it. And here Paul describes it again. They've obviously taken this phrase from Jesus himself. It's an, a sudden and unexpected arrival, something that catches people off guard. Paul tells us here that for some people, Jesus' return will come as a major surprise. 
because they're not expecting it, they're not anticipating it. And not only will it surprise them, they won't be ready for it, and it will result in incalculable loss. Look what he says here in verse 3. He says, well, some people are saying there is peace and security. Sudden destruction will come upon them, as in labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And Paul's point here is that for some people, when, when Jesus comes again, it will catch them unaware. Uh, unaware of what's happening, suddenly they'll wake up to realize what is going on, but it will be too late. And that's the point around labor pains, right? I'm, I'm not sure if any of you are expecting a child in the coming months uh, being added to your family. What do you do? Well, at around eight months, you pack a bag for the hospital. I'm not sure if you do that in, in Australia. In South Africa, everyone did that when we had our children. At eight months, you pack a bag, your hospital bag, and you have it ready by the front door because any day, labor pains might come upon you. Uh, you know, around eight and a half months, you go into a business meeting if you're a guy and you tell your colleagues, listen, I'm keeping my phone on loud. If my wife calls, I'm going to answer this phone because uh, any day now we're expecting a child. You don't continue with life as normal as if nothing's happening, right? You don't book an overseas holiday for when your wife is 39 weeks pregnant. Um, uh, th that's not a good idea. No, you get ready. Everything is framed in light of the imminent arrival of this child. But when exactly that's gonna happen, uh, nobody knows. I remember when our first daughter arrived um, in 2012, it, my wife was about 37 weeks pregnant and it was my birthday and so uh, I had taken half a day's leave, worked in the morning, took afternoon off and we were going to have a relaxing afternoon and go out for dinner that night for my birthday. Well, I walked in the front door at 1.30 and uh, the first thing Clay said to me was, it started. And uh, that was the end of our birthday plans and my daughter came later that evening. But for those who are unprepared, uh, it can be disastrous, right? For mother and child, their very lives can be at stake. If you're not ready, not prepared, you, you don't know what to do when that time comes. And that's Paul's uh, point here. He, he says that, that for some people, Christ's return is going to catch them um, out. It's going to be unexpected. And, and it, it might even be disastrous. He says in verse 3 here, it will result in sudden destruction. To change analogies, I think of the Titanic, right? Sank uh, 110 years ago. And, uh, you know, the Titanic, the night it sank, there were six messages, warning signs that came from passing ships uh, saying that there are icebergs and, and ice fields in the water. And the, the guy on the radio station, he passed on the first two messages to the captain. But after that, he was so caught up with other stuff. He was trying to relay messages that passengers had sent or received. And actually, the, when the sixth message came through from a passing ship saying, warning icebergs around, he sent a message back saying, shut up, I'm busy with other things. He didn't heed the warning and the iceberg came and it caught them unaware. And the result was disastrous, loss of life. Well, Paul says here that when Christ's return will come, for some people, it will be unexpected and uh, it will catch them unawares. And that doesn't sound like very good news. I mean, look what he says here. It sounds pretty negative. He says, a thief in the night, sudden destruction, inescapable labor pains. But look again at verse 2. 
he says something interesting here. He says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, that doesn't really make sense because if you're fully aware of something, then it won't catch you out like a thief in the night. I mean, the whole point is that, uh, that Paul's saying some people are not aware. And so that doesn't seem to make sense, right? But of course, that's his point because look at verse four. He says, but, but you, he's talking to the Christians here, you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters. So that day won't be a surprise to you like a thief in the night. Paul's point is that for Christ's return, for some people will be full of anguish and regret. But for those who have longed for Christ's coming, longed for Christ's return, it will be a day of great joy and anticipation and excitement. For finally, we will be taken home. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, For God has not destined us, those of us that are in Christ, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, he means whether we are still living or whether we've died, when Christ comes, we might live with him. Paul here speaks of those who are in Christ who see themselves as exiles in this world, who anticipate Christ's return and long for his advent. And he says that, that, that it'll be a day of salvation, a day of great fulfillment of everything that we've longed for. The fulfillment of our deepest longings and hopes and desires in this world will finally be realized. Deb spoke earlier about Advent. I'm not sure how much uh, you celebrate Advent or that's a part of your life and your family. I grew up in a family which Advent, we weren't a very traditional family. Uh, Advent wasn't a big part of our family. We never did Advent readings or, or any of that kind of stuff. And uh, about 10 years, 10 years ago, actually, when my first daughter was born, um, my wife and I had this conversation. And around that time, I had freshly fallen in love with the gospel. I discovered the gospel anew. And Jesus and, um, and the gospel just became astoundingly wonderful to me. I, I was a pastor. I was a very legalistic pastor. I was a very self-righteous pastor. And the gospel really just got a hold of me and changed my life. Um, and around that time, I, I fell in love with Advent. And, uh, and so since then, our family's really got involved in it in a big way. And one of my th favorite things about Advent is the Christmas carols. These amazing hymns that have been sung for centuries, um, full of theology and, and wonderful pictures. And one of my favorite Christmas carols is the Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I, I don't know if you know it. Let me read some of the words to you. It goes like this. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our hearts by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. O come, desire of nations, bind as one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease and be thyself our king of peace. Friends, this is what Christ's return promises. A whole new world 
salvation, we, we read about that in verse 10, not just from God's just judgment for our sin, yes, that, but, but oh, so much more than that. Salvation from the curse of the world that, that came as, as a result of, of sin entering our world. Salvation from the brokenness of this world that, that came as a result of sin. Salvation from the morning and the gloomy clouds and, and the tyranny that we sang about and sad divisions and death's dark shadows and the grave and, and, and the broken world. In verse 10, he talks about how Christ will come and bring us salvation, that we will be with him forever. You know, the gospel is not just that Jesus says, okay, I'll forgive you of your sins. I'll, I'll give you a righteousness that's not your own. And I'll, uh, I'll give you a fresh start. Try not to mess up this time. No, no, Jesus comes and he says he will, he will take us to be with him. And at Christmas, at Christmas, we celebrate Christ's first coming, his advent. But, oh, we look forward to a second coming. When Christ will return and take us to be with him forever. To a new heavens and a new earth. To a place where there'll be no more mourning. No more tears, no more cancer, no more division, no more animosity, no more frustration, no more sin, no more sickness in our world. Friends, isn't that wonderful? Isn't it amazing? Doesn't it make your heart want to rejoice? Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Emmanuel, Jesus will come again. And for those of us who are in Christ and long for his appearing, long for his coming, Jesus, it will be a day of great joy and celebration and excitement. This Christmas, we look back and celebrate Christ's coming, but oh, we look forward with hope and longing and anticipation for that true and final advent. When all that is wrong and broken of this world, all the, the gloom and the darkness and the the depression, the anxiety, the dark clouds that hang over us will be put to flight forever. And this is Paul's point, that Christ is coming again. And he says, those that are unconcerned about it, those that, that, that pay no regard, those who go about life and couldn't care less about Christ and his coming, it'll come upon them suddenly, unexpectedly, and it will result in tears and deep regret. But for those who are in Christ, who, who love Christ, who long for his appearing, who can't wait for him to come and, and make right all that is wrong with this world, ah, oh, it won't be painful. It will be remarkably joyful. It will be the fulfillment of everything we've longed for and hoped for. The very best ending to every story that we've ever read, it will make it pale in significance compared to Christ coming again. Maybe this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're still trying to explore the Christian faith and make sense of, of Jesus. The gospel is such great news about the past because of what Jesus did on the cross, but it's astoundingly good news for all eternity as Christ takes us with him in a physical, bodily form in the new heavens and new earth where every tear is wiped away, everything that's wrong with our world is made untrue. We will be with him forever. And so Paul says that Christ is coming again. When he comes, we don't know. How he comes exactly, we're not sure, but he's coming. And we can put our confidence in that. We can, we can put our hope in that. We can be assured of that. 
But the question then is, well, so what? What, what does that mean? Well, Paul gives us a couple of practical implications of this. And the first one is this. He says, because Christ is coming, therefore, live attentively and expectantly. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, those who reject Christ and his coming will be cut, result in much pain and heartache. But verse 4, he says, but you, those of us who are in Christ, are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, so that day won't come as a surprise to you. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. If you're in Christ, he says, the sudden and unexpected coming won't be your reality. Because those of us who are in Christ are not of darkness, we are of the day. And how did that happen? Paul says there's been this transference from the kingdom of darkness, as it were, to the kingdom of light. But, but how does that happen? Well, it came to us when the gospel of Christ came to us, when the message of Jesus and, and the cross and what he did, when it opened our eyes and illuminated us, it, it transferred us from darkness into light. He shone the light of the gospel into our hearts and caused us to be born again. I'm sure you know this very famous verse in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes this, he says, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I know that's a very wordy sentence. The Apostle Paul tends to do that from time to time. But what he's saying is this, is that just when God created the world, he spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. And his speaking created the world. In the same way, he says, so he spoke into the darkness of our hearts and our minds and our thinking. He illuminated our hearts and our minds and our thinking by showing us the face of Christ and showing us who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. And he, the glory of God in the, the, in the person of Jesus illuminated our thinkings. For just as God said, let light shine up the, out of the darkness, so has he shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the majesty and the glory of God. How? In the face of Christ, by showing us Christ. And so, friends, when the gospel comes to us and we receive it and we believe it, we take it out of this darkness and, and transfer it into a light, we are illuminated or enlightened, as it were. And Paul says, now that we live in light of that awakening, now let us live in light of that. Let us live aware of Christ's coming. Live attentive to the reality of the gospel and the hope of what's coming. With sharpened awareness and sensibility that one day Christ is coming. That this world is not our home. That we are sojourners or exiles in this world with Christ our home still to come. Let us live aware and attentive to the hope of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 5 and 8. He says, for you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of darkness or, uh, or of the night. So therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us stay awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and the helmet of our salvation. 
Paul here, I don't think he's talking about physical sleepiness and physical drunkenness, although there's probably a parallel between the analogy and the, the reality. He, his point is don't be drowsy, don't be lethargic, don't be dull to Jesus and his coming. You know, uh, don't be intoxicated with the things of this world. One of the things that alcohol does is it dulls our senses, right? That's why it's not a good idea to drink alcohol and drive. You're not very sharp and aware of what's going on around you. And Paul's saying, don't be desensitized to Christ's coming. Don't be so intoxicated by the things of this world that you think this world is your home. No, Jesus is coming in and be attentive and aware. Live full of faith and expectation for that day. You might remember Colossians chapter 3 says something similar. He says, since you've been raised with Christ, see the things that are above. Or another translation says, set your heart on the things above, where Christ is. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you have died, your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So, so Christ is our life. Our future is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. Your hope and your identity and your purpose are in Christ. Set your mind on, on Christ and who he is. Set your, your heart on the things of heaven. For Christ is coming soon. And he will take us with him to our home. So what does that mean practically? Well, a couple of things. I think one thing it means is your job is not just a job or a way to make means or money or salary. Your job is a vocation. It's a calling. And so tomorrow as you wake up and you go to the office or you go to work or you, you engage in those meetings, tomorrow you, you're engaging with your calling, your vocation. Go to work tomorrow with your mind and your heart set on Christ and things above, knowing that this world is not your home, but Christ is coming to take you to your true and lasting home forever. Or think about this. It means parenting. Parenting is not just raising children so that they can get a good education and one day get a good job and be stable and mature adults. No, parenting is raising our children to love and treasure Jesus Christ, to live with heaven as their home, to see this world as, as, as see themselves as exiles in this world. Those children who will set their hearts and minds on the things of Christ. Friends, you know what it means? It means not making setting our hope and identity in things of this world. I've heard that Perth is a beautiful city, uh, a really wonderful city. And I was just chatting to someone this week who said that Perth is full of amazing beaches. I love beach. The beach is uh, a real happy place for me. But, but part of what this passage means is don't spend your life, the best years of your life, kite surfing and windsurfing your way into the grave. Yeah, enjoy the beach. It's a great blessing. Enjoy kite surfing and windsurfing. Praise God for those gifts of grace. But, but this world is not a home. It means you don't need to spend, you, you retire, maybe you're able to retire early. Praise God for that. Don't spend the best years of your life just kite surfing your way into glory or, or um, refining your golf game. Yeah, enjoy a game of golf. But friends, Christ is coming. Live expectantly, live full of faith, live anticipating Christ's coming. It means seeing the things that God has given us, our homes, our resources, as vehicles to love and serve others. 
to encourage one another. It means opening our homes to those that maybe don't have family in Perth, ministering to their needs, but also their souls and encouraging them. And so Paul says, live expectantly, live anticipating Christ's coming. Here's another thing, implication. It means be secure in the gospel. Look at what Paul says here in verse 8 with me. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. If you grew up in the church or in a church um, context, this Verse 8 might bring to mind another very famous passage of scripture that talks about breastplates and helmets and swords and uh, all sorts of other armory, right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, very famous passage, and it talks about you know, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith and kids ministry leaders love dressing kids up and all that kind of armor right so every year uh, kids ministry around the world will have a day where they cut out a, a sword and a shield and a helmet out of cardboard boxes and they they talk about these things but what are those things really i mean what do what do peace and righteousness and salvation and faith really refer to and what, what's the broad category that all those things refer to what does it mean to take up the breastplate of righteousness? What does that actually mean in 21st century Australia, right? Well, I think all of those are actually words that refer to different aspects of the gospel. So, for instance, Paul's saying, stand firm in the righteousness that has been given to you because Christ died on the cross to give you righteousness that is not earned or merited, but is credited to you by grace alone. Paul says, stand firm in the truth of who God is and who you are in Christ. And so when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, stand firm in the truth that Christ has made you righteous. Or stand firm, secure in Christ. You are at peace with God. Once you alienated, exiled, strangers to covenants of the promise. But now because of Jesus, you are at peace with God, reconciled to him. Or stand secure, confident that you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. This is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, all of those words, you know, faith and grace and righteousness and truth and, and all those, those armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 are actually aspects of the gospel. Well, look what Paul says here. He says the same thing. He says, since we belong to the day, in other words, since we know that Christ is coming, the gospel has shone in our hearts and illuminated our hearts, let us be sober, that means alert, attentive, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's saying, stand firm in the gospel of undeserved grace and mercy. And now he's going to elaborate on that gospel. He says, for God has not destined or predestined as for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, who died so that whether we are awake or asleep, we get to live with him forever. So friends, here's the question. How do we stand firm in faith, 
living vigilantly and decisively and attentively waiting for Christ's coming and not um, a dull or unattentive, not making this world our home? How do we do that? How do we push back darkness both in our own lives and in the city of Perth, bring Christ's uh, kingdom to, to Perth and to the cities of this world? I think the answer is this. We preach the gospel to our own hearts and we remind ourselves of the truth of Christ and who he is. And we remind ourselves of who we are in him. And we let the wonder of Christ and the gospel flood our hearts. In other words, we gospelize ourselves. And so tomorrow, as you go to work and as you go to college and as you go to university, friends, as you look after elderly parents or you look after young children, there are going to be tons of reasons for you to be full of self-doubt, for you to feel insecure, for you to look for the praise and the, the approval of mankind. And in those, in those moments, we, you preach the gospel to yourself and say, Christ is my righteousness. And friends, there will be people that let us down and, and say silly things or, or hurt us. And in that moment, we preach the gospel to ourselves and say, this world is not my home. And, and, and as uh, people maybe let us down, we remind ourselves, as Christ has loved me and forgiven me, so I get to love and forgive one another. Friends, this passage calls us to start off the day tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, rooted and anchored and secure in who Christ is and who we are, full of faith, full of love for Christ and love for one another confident in his sovereign grace and so how do we become these people well we preach the gospel to our own hearts we gospelize ourselves and that leads to the third and final thing that paul says is we get to encourage and strengthen one another look at verse 11 he says here therefore encourage one another build one another up just as you are doing in other words, we gospelize one another. We speak the gospel over one another and encourage one another and build one another up. Friends, when somebody in the church community uh, is struggling or when life is hard, or when things are not going their way and they lose their job or they get sick or the doctor report comes back and it's, it's cancer, we speak the good news of the gospel over one another and say, this world is not your home. Christ is coming, he died on the cross to purchase you by his blood. He promises that you will be with him forever. Or friends, when, when people let us down, we, we speak the gospel over one another. We weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we point one another to Jesus. If the key to living life expectantly in light of the gospel is gospel sanity, and if the gospel leaks from our hearts, which it does, and if we all tempted to move from treasuring Christ and delighting the gospel to assuming the gospel, which we do, then one of the great joys and privileges of the church community is to be a community that speaks the gospel over one another, that then encourages and builds up one another in Christ and reminds one another of the hope of Christ and the hope of the gospel. And so the author of the book of Hebrews says the same thing. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another and to love and good deeds, 
not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ appearing. Friends, in Christ's first coming, Jesus came with such humility, such tenderness. God of God, light of light, born in a manger, came through Mary's womb, such humility. That's what Christmas and Advent are about, remembering Jesus' coming. But friends, this Christmas, let's also remember Christ's second Advent, the true and better Advent, when Christ will come to his people, when he will put right all that is wrong and broken in this world, where he will push back the gloomy clouds of darkness, where, where death and despair will be no more. And Christ will return and come with the cry of a command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and the dead will rise with Christ first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him and meet him in glory. And we will be with him forever. Friends, this year, this Christmas, let's hold on to Jesus, living confidently, living expectantly, living boldly, standing firm in the gospel and encouraging one another to do the same. Let me pray for us. Oh, our Heavenly Father, good and gracious King Jesus, tender Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning, and God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Perth. God, I imagine some are maybe holding on to the gospel as their only hope in life and death, God. Maybe some have recently received a bad medical report. Some might have been retrenched from work. Maybe some are facing all sorts of challenges. God, I pray by your spirit, won't you minister to us this morning? And Jesus, thank you for the great encouragement of 1 Thessalonians 5, that you, God, are going to return. You will come back. How or when, we don't know. You've said we don't need to know, but you will come and you will take us with you. Uh, and we will be with you forever. God, you have destined us for salvation because Jesus died on the cross. And God, I pray that the encouragement of the gospel, not just what you did once upon a time, but what you are doing and what you will do, will be a great encouragement to us this Christmas. And so God, I pray, won't you help us to be sober and alert and aware? Won't you help us to live attentively, ready and expectantly for Christ's return. God, won't you help us to set our hearts and our minds on the things of Christ, knowing that when you come, we will be you in glory. Oh God, won't you loosen the grip that the things of this world have upon us. Help us, God, not to be so intoxicated by the things of this world that we forget about you and your glory. Jesus, fix our eyes on you, I pray. I pray, help us this week to do the same, not just on Sunday morning, but Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, when we're at work or college or at home, Christ, help us to fix our eyes on you. I pray this in your wonderful and your most gracious and majestic name. Amen.